So I thought, I don't know whether my consciousness is full consciousness or not. I don't know whether my being is a proper being or not, but I do know where my rapture is. So let me hang out a rapture, and that'll bring me both being and full consciousness, and it worked. Welcome back to Bliss Monkey. Um, today, I have another special guest, uh, my dad, Peter Bone. Say hello. Hello. How you doing out there? <laughs> um, good. Well, I'm good. And uh, today, I really wanted to talk about creativity mm. and um, how you experience that and also um, how that's evolved for you because I've noticed that it's quite a... It seems to be quite a blissful thing from mm -hmm. from my perspective to see what you do. Um, yeah, but so I guess it, by way of beginning, um, what do you think when you hear the word bliss? How would you describe that? Hmm. Bliss. Um, I think bliss is when, um, I think it's just when time slows down and you don't really realize what you're doing because you're so involved in whatever you're uh, currently occupied with. Mm. Um and I think when that happens, you're just so preoccupied, you're so into it that you just get into a state of like, just a flow state. Mm. And then you can just enjoy and you just get into what you're doing. Yeah. And kind of focus on it and empty your mind. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a good definition. Um, what were the, what were the first ways that you experienced that? Like your mm. earliest experiences of that type of bliss? Um, that's a good question. Probably fishing. Mm. Um, it was very quiet and peaceful. And, you know, I used to think it was about catching the fish, but it's actually about the pursuit of the fish. Mm. <laughs> it's about being present with the fish. Huh. If you get fish, that's a bonus. Um, fishing is really about hanging out, either with your friends or just by yourself, um, and just trying to figure out what nature's doing, what you're up to, noticing what's around you. Yeah. Um, noticing what the fish are doing. Are they doing anything? Mm. Um, is it worthwhile doing it? Should you wait a little bit longer? Is kind of being in touch with what's going on with your surroundings. Mm. Yeah, it's like a contemplative practice. Those are quite blissful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and be used to go fishing with my great-grandfather. Right. right. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Did little. you notice that he had like a kind of heightened awareness of the way that the fish would behave or things about the environment you hadn't noticed? Well, he would kind of hum a little bit uh, when he was doing it. Um, he'd make these little noises when he was really? like, and he, he was he was just quiet. He was very intense about it, but he was very, because he always liked nature as well too. He actually liked harvesting nature. Mm. He actually thought it as a food source, um, but he really enjoyed kind of being out and around it. He really enjoyed every time he caught a fish. Like we would go for uh, brown trout and rainbow trout, and uh, every time we caught one, we'd just look at it. It was just beautiful. Mm. It was this 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 little fish had all these colors on the bottom. Um, you pop it out of a stream, and it was they were really tasty. Um, but it was always a challenge to get them. I mean, the thing was you do with the, with the trout, you have to approach them from um, uh, upstream, upstream, um, mm. with downstream because if it's upstream, you'll disturb them and they'll spook. And once they get spooked, quote unquote, they just hide. They'll hide for about ten or twenty minutes, and they won't bite again. So even if they see you move, they'll kind of hide. Um, so they're very smart. So you had to kind of be, you couldn't be clumsy. Hmm. You had to kind of know what you were doing. They weren't that hard to fool. <laughs> if you dropped something or snapped a twig on the side of the uh, stream, they would just dart in their holes and they'd be gone. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I get, m- most of my experiences fishing have been with you. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's definitely, especially when I was younger, there was definitely a lack of patience. And, like, uh, I really want to just catch a fish. And so they have, like, in Wisconsin, they have, like, gobies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which are so easy to catch yeah. that it kind of, it might take away a little bit of the, uh, yeah. the like, the the mystery of the of, of waiting for the big for the big catch um, could you could you explain the goby for well, a like the goby is just it's an invasive species in the great lakes and they i think they're from the black sea but they're just i don't know about uh 10 centimeters long they just live on the bottom and they'll literally eat anything mm. um so that's why when you go where you're little you go for panfish those are little fish like rock bass and bluegills and uh, perch and there's usually schools of those and you can catch a lot of those like we do at highland lake mm. you can catch an unlimited amount of like these little 15 centimeter fish mm-hmm. um, they're not really you can't eat them but they're kind of fun to catch mm-hmm. uh, but after a while I get tired when you're a little kid though it's fun catching them yeah yeah and it, but it kind of under um, undermines that whole nice metaphor you started with of like it's about the journey to catching the fish not the fish in itself well, so that's how you get into fishing that's how you get somebody to start mm-hmm. to fish because you start catching fish mm-hmm. and then the more the more fish you catch is probably the less important how many you catch because you're looking for the big one, or you're just out there doing something different. You're just out there. You remember being out there when you were little, or it's just a nice day, or yeah. Um, mm. um, so you, you, the more you catch, the kind of the less uh, competitive it is. But yeah, it's always nice to catch a big one. I mean, even if it gets away, it's nice to know there's one out there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because you can't really see them. I mean, they're invisible, right? So you just there's something in the water. It's uh, it's kind of a, an act of faith to go fishing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so what other, like, uh, practices or, like, passions did you have that you similarly got this kind of feeling? Especially, like, creative ones when you were younger. Um, like, I built digging holes. Mm. We used to dig holes in the back of our back garden when we were kids. Huge holes. Uh-huh. Like, these were huge. They were big. They were the size of cars. Uh, we couldn't go down below... The size of a car. Yeah, we couldn't go down below... Like, I think we had to say shoulder high, and they couldn't be like, they had to be like wide so they couldn't collapse in on us. Yeah, we would we would do it all summer long. We'd dig giant holes. Wow. It was mostly sand in the backyard where I grew up. It was sand, and there's some good pictures of it. Grandma and granddad have some good pictures. We would just dig giant holes. Um, oh and we'd have, like, you know, water fights and that kind of stuff. What else do we used to do? Uh, you know, play sports. We had, a, like, a little, we had a neighborhood with lots of kids. So we'd always kind of try to, you know, beat the other team and, in a game of uh, what we call bat ball, which is a primitive form of local baseball. It was like mm-hmm. a hybrid game. It was the ball, it was just big enough that you couldn't hit it out of the yard. So it became like we just kind of scaled down the game. Mm. Pretty much the same rules. There were some local rules. <laughs> <laughs> but so is this the same? I mean, because yeah, it does sound like these are really kind of passions that absorb your time and you just kind of get lost in them. Yeah. Were. Uh, I know you also played like football in high school. Yeah, was that like a similar yeah. type of thing? Yeah, that was fun. I used to uh, lift weights in high school as well too, and that was that was you can get into that. So it was kind of like a zen state, mm. but it was fun. Kind of, I just like playing. I like being able to actually hit people. <laughs> as a teenager. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of it was kind of fun. I mean, it was when we were playing, we had we had just enough padding that we wouldn't get seriously injured. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was it was kind of, yeah, kind of went from one thing to another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one thing that I've always found really interesting about what you did creatively when you were younger was your experience with with maps mm. and like map creation. Mm. Um, 
when you were at university. Could you speak more about that passion? Sure. So when I was, uh, I was always really good when I had to go to university. Uh, I was, uh, University of Wisconsin is a very large university of 40,000 plus students. Mm. And uh, registration was random every year. And my freshman year, my name happened to be dead last for registration. And registration was done in person. You had to run from building to building, from department to department to get your classes. And when I did mine, all the classes were full. <laughs> the whole university was full. I had to go on waiting list for everything. They went to my advisor and they was said... Was that your first year? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And, it, and it's, uh, I didn't get into any like the really hard classes I had to take. Uh, anthropology and bot- you know, botany 101, that kind of stuff. Um, geology. And I was always good at geography. So I thought I might be a geography major, but there wasn't, you know, I just I was just as good at it in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I, I got all these classes, and, I, and then I, I was on the waiting list, and I got in, but I got, like, I got really good grades, so I was good at it for, like, the whole first semester. Mm-hmm. And I was, like, pre-engineering, but I wasn't very good at math, so I wasn't going to be an engineer. Because I like building stuff. I thought I could be an engineer, but that was, really wasn't. I'm more <laughs> of, like, a, a, a builder than, like, an engineer. Like more a maker. Of a, I'm, a ma- I'm more of a maker than an engineer. Yeah. Um, so, but they wouldn't let me out of the engineering school because I had a really good GPA. <laughs> oh, wow. So my advisor wouldn't let me out. Then eventually I got transferred into geography, but I always liked maps. And then I happened to take a couple courses that, and then I realized there was a cartography department at Wisconsin. Mm. Uh, I was one of only three universities, I think at the time, that had a cartography department. Oh, wow. Uh, Maryland, Wisconsin. Oh, was that? I can't remember the other one. Anyways, um, maybe Kansas. Um, anyway, so uh, it was a result of the professor relocating there after World War II. Mm-hmm. We, we, we'd done a lot of maps for uh, the precursor of the CIA. Um, mm-hmm. Robinson, he was really good. He was still there when I, when I first started. He was like the director of He the was movie. a legend, yeah. yeah. Huh. He's the one who created infrared film. He created infrared film? Yeah, he, he's the one that used the, figured he could use infrared film to find out tanks that were disguised. In, in Europe, so the uh, the Germans would is that, is that like night vision? It's kind of like night vision. So when you cut down a tree, it stops emitting a light waves. I think in the red light wave, once it's dead, huh. it still looks green to the eye. And huh. so he perfected infrared film, where at night they take photos, and they could see where the Germans had chopped down trees and put them over tanks or uh, bunkers or uh, operational headquarters, Whoa. and they never told anybody this. But so they could see where where the foliage had been chopped down, and what they were trying to hide. So they knew there was something there. So in, in World War Two. In World War Two. So they used that to target, and they used that not only for the infantry, but I think for the um, for bombing and air, air attacks. So wow. then when he got out after the war, he um, they said, "Where do you want to be a professor at? We'll fund you." So it was like a thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did lots of cool stuff. And he did a, a unique projection of the world as well, the Robinson projection, which is equidistance. Um, an equal area. It's a compromise between the two um, things because in a globe you can't do that. You can't get both uh, equal area and equal distance. On uh, a flat map, when you take a globe to a circular surface to a flat surface, you you have to compromise. So what is like the normal one that we see? Is like is that the Mercator? That's the Mercator projection, and it exaggerates the northern hemisphere by about a third. Wow, um, that's so, a lot. So yeah, that's a lot. Um, but but what is what that was used for is transportation. Um, because it was very useful for navigation. And uh-huh. back in, you know, when they had wooden ships and all that, it was very useful for that. It was very accurate for that. So it wasn't done on purpose to make the northern third of North America bigger. Uh-huh. It was just done because it was a really good application for navigation. But it was also mostly 
like the northern third that were doing all the navigating. Yeah, it, well, it happened to be, and that's that's why they were interested in that bit because that's where all the accidents would occur. Uh-huh. Um, but so, and having do that, so I took some courses and I realized, you know, how much I liked it. And then it was a cartography laboratory, so I got an internship there. I worked there for like two or three years. Oh wow! But um, interestingly, when we did maps, the the thing that really got me about it was um, uh, basically infographics. So. It's, it was the most efficient way to, dis, to display complex information um, visually that's ever been created. So you can look at a map of like the Lake District and you can get millions of relationships at a glance. Hmm. And it's probably in your mind and you'll have some idea where those three lakes are, there's mountains between them, there's streams, and all hmm. that kind of stuff. Until this day, it's still a really effective way of, 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 of giving information. Like if you give written directions, like they'll do sometimes. Written directions are almost useless. Because if you make one wrong turn, um, then it's, it's all messed up. Yeah. But if it's visual and you know, like, oh, I went past this stream and there's a river here and there's a bluff there and there's a hill to the left, you know where you're at. Yeah. And you can retrace it and go back. Um, so, so that's one of the reasons I did it. And it was very interesting. They always, in newspapers, they would always do uh, the articles and would accompany the small map of, you know, the Congo with an area where the diamonds were, that kind of stuff. So you had some mm-hmm. idea... And then that map, they'd show a picture of the Congo, where the diamonds were, and then that would be zoomed into a globe, so you saw on the globe where that country was. Yeah. It was very effective. Right. So you get some idea of what the planet's all about and how everything's connected. Yeah, it's kind of like a God's eye view yeah. of, of the world. Yeah. yeah. That's so, interesting. So we did it, when I was doing it, we were, we were doing it by hand still. So we had to do, um, there wasn't much computer stuff at that point. That was like the 80s, mid-80s. Um, so we were doing scribing by hand. With little scribes, they had little ruby points on them. We'd scribe things away, like river streams, that kind of stuff. What, what does it mean to scribe? So you have to create negatives to make a... So we were making maps. It would just be a series of uh, basically of four colors. And every color was coded to something else. Cyan would be rivers, that's blue. And then red would be administrative boundaries, and, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. And then type would be of different sizes, depending on if it was a county boundary, a state boundary, an international boundary. And then rivers had different sizes. So every river, based on the size of the river, was a bigger font, a little bit bigger. So you could see it, and they were all in blue. Um, so it's, it's, all, it's all color-coded. So if you look at the key on a map, it tells you everything you need to know. If you look at the map and there's something there, you're like, oh, what's, what does red type mean? And you look back down, it'll tell you what it means. Right, that's like the legend. It's the legend, yeah. It's called so the key. Specific, you said you used like ruby-tipped scribes? So, what we used to, so you had to create, um, so it was black, yellow, um, magenta and cyan, those are the uh, subtractive printing colors. Uh-huh. And so for every one of those colors, there was probably 20 or 30 different uh, elements that would go on to that master negative. And each one of those things had to be made separately. And then you'd expose it on a sheet of, of film, a large sheet of film, like a meter by a meter or two meters. Hmm. Um, but every one of those things, like the rivers would go on one, then the type would go on another, uh-huh. then lakes would go on another. And then these are all be created separately. Right. So you you so when you're scribing the the rivers, you had this little tool that would scrape away. It was a piece of plastic that had like a a layer on it. It was kind of plasticky, and you would take the um, the the scribe, which is like a little three pointed thing, and you just it, depending on what how big the river was, it was a point two or a point six. You'd scribe along that, and you do all those first. Then you connect them with a bigger one, and they always go into a bigger and bigger one. So that would be the streams. That would be the hydrology behind it. So you just you're like tracing the the line of a river by hand. By hand. So the the, the rivers the rivers had been traced onto this sheet. Had been transferred to this giant sheet, 
by, uh, by photographic methods. So you knew what you were tracing. They were all on there. They were transferred from a master database, master negatives. But um, were they taken from satellites? Uh, they were old. I think it was the United States Geological Survey had a lot of them. They had a whole inventory of them. Which means like planes took them. Usually planes back in the day. So there was a, you could, you could, there was an archive we could use because we were associated with the U.S. Geological Survey. So we could go get theirs. And we had a, so we would go and sometimes we would get them. And one thing I did one summer was I had to go, and for the entire United States, I had to make negatives of all the drainage basins. So the I drainage did, basins. So there's all these little, all the little rivers. And so I did the whole thing, and we just put them in our archive. at The, well, the entire room. United States. Pretty much. I mean, I, it took me, like, all summer to do it. I was down at the, the, the geological, and they said, oh, we can, you, can we copy your, your drainage database? So we have it. We can use it whenever we want to. Now all that stuff's online. Now you can download it. I think you can download so it pretty easily. when you say copying all of the drainage basins in the United States, you mean, like, taking the negatives that they had in this survey place and yeah. making your own copy of it by hand? Yeah, so you take a negative. It's a big thing, like a meter-by-a-meter sheet. So it's two, and we had a big vacuum frame, and you put that on a piece of other film that you had to cut. So we had these big, huge rolls of film that we cut in a darkroom. So I'm in a darkroom. And then you put registration marks in it, because the other one had registration marks, and they all matched, because so registration marks were standard for different sizes. Right. So then you'd... Then there would be pins in the machine, and you put the, the original negative down uh-huh. with emulsion up, and then you put the new negative da- uh, negative on there, emulsion down, so the emulsions are facing each other, so light couldn't scatter and make the holes bigger than they should be. Huh. Then you'd expose it for X amount of seconds or minutes in the dark room, and then you know you'd flip the thing over. And there was a big arc lamp underneath it, and it would expose it for like 30 seconds. You'd leave the room, and then you'd flip it back over, and then get so you turn the vacuum frame on, it would vacuum the air out of it flip it over in this big spindle thing Whoa. and then you'd hit the expose button for 30 seconds and you come back in flip it over release the air take the negative out and then in the dark room you'd feed into this giant film developing machine that was like the size of our garage and it would go on one side and it come out the other side and then it's done and then it was done and we had a negative and then you didn't see how many wow. du- how much dust was on it so then it came out and there was dust particles on it so you try to clean everything off but the dust particles would come through as like a, a hole like it was like a little lake like a tiny smidge. So then you had to, we lay them out on light tables that were huge, and you go over them with little, um, I can't remember what it was called, like some little opaquing fluid, like a little, it was like a little, Whoa. and you'd, you'd have to go through it, and you'd have to touch up every one of the dust holes and fill wow. it in so it didn't come through. And so this took you a whole summer to do? Yeah, I did a whole summer. It was a summer job at one point, I think, doing like, wow. I did it for like two months. Um, and it, it, I was in there with another guy, Steve Davies, yeah. He was a, we were, Shout out to Steve Davies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what what other projects did you do in the photography lab? So we did uh, we did some maps for Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica. We did some stuff for them. We did a lot of textbook maps. Um, we did some like the, uh, the original um, English as a single language. We did El Barrio de Jane. <laughs> That's the neighborhood of Jane. So it was kids' books. It had maps in them. Uh, so we would do those. El we, Barrio de Jane. Yeah, so we did a lot of those. We did a lot of Spanish language ones. We did um, coal basin mapping for the United States. We had the contract to do all those, or like half of those. So coal basins were any area in the United States that had coal in it had to have uh, U.S. Geological Survey did uh, like a risk analysis of like drainage and topsoil and mm. where it all was. And there were huge pamphlets. I think I still have a couple around. So we did a lot of Wyoming. We did Illinois. We did Illinois's got a huge amount of coal. Um, uh, so we did the Wind River Range in Montana. We did the Sisters out in um, Oregon. There, there's a whole bunch of coal underneath there. Wow. So any coal base in the United States was mapped 
and then we so we had to go so we do those there'd be multiple layers on those and then I did an experimental satellite map of my of my home county that came in one of the grad students had this of Door County that was the first one ever done um, it was what experimental satellite map so it was everything was done by a caller from space so they did Door County because the grad students could then go up in the summer and say, oh, okay, that is an orchard, or that is a swamp. Huh. And then what they'd, so the data came in from the satellite, and it would show like a swamp, or it would show an orchard. And then so that, that would give a, the pixels would give an, like a, a value. Right. So then we pretty much knew what they were, but they'd have to go ground truth. Then they could take that data from that little part of Wisconsin and apply it to the entire United States. Oh, and wow. say anything that fits this uh, uh, profile is probably a wetlands or is probably an orchard, and then they could computer map stuff. It was the beginning of computer mapping. So, th I mean, this brings me to uh, an interesting question because you said, like, this is quite advanced cartography that's going on, mm -hmm. like, kind of cutting edge, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. But then you said that a lot of people, like, the lab was actually founded by someone who was using this in military applications. Yeah. yeah. And so, how did that? continue to play out like at the time that you were there so a lot of the grad students ended up working for the CIA because they needed jobs and that was really so when I was in school the economy under Reagan took a big hit and everybody kind of had to work for the government so the CIA at that point was doing um, called a DTMs which are digital terrain maps which now everybody uses um, it's kind of the standard stuff on Google uh, but they were doing is they were they were actually digitizing the entire planet um, for military purposes, but specifically for delivering um, uh, nuclear-tipped cruise missiles. Whoa. ICBMs. Not ICBMs, cruise missiles. But they, uh, ICBMs, uh, ICBMs could use it too, but they mostly needed it for cruise missiles. What's the difference between a cruise missile? It goes though? closer to the ground. So it needed, it needed to know where all the hills were so it could fly in without hitting anything. Whoa. So it was kind of a nefarious thing. This is like Cold War. Yeah, it was Cold War stuff. And these were pretty lethal weapons. Wow. It was pretty much... A weapon of mass destruction. So I didn't really want to do it. I didn't. A lot of the grad students didn't have a choice. They did it and they got into it and they've done all sorts of great stuff probably because that was just mm -hmm. for a little while. Now the DTMs are used for everything in the world. Right. Digital terrain maps are used for everything. Um, and they're used for CGI. Now uses it to make characters for um, the Avenger movies. That's all. Uh, that's, all digi that's all digital terrain mapping. They just digitally terrain map your body. It's gotten uh, to that instead level. Instead of land. Instead of land, yeah. It's all, it's all scanning. So this is, they were scanning the earth at that point. And, uh, and I think it was down to maybe five or six feet at that point, or 20 feet, wow. um, which is way ahead of anything else. Um, but the other thing with maps is when you make a map, you have to be very careful. So you have to edit every, every layer also. When we're doing these layers, you have to about make sure there's no mistakes. Right. Because if there's a mistake on a map, the problem is somebody could die. Yeah. Because people use them to like hike and survive. So you re really, the, 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 the level of quality, it would go through about 10 or 20 edits before we could let anything go. Wow. And if it was screwed up, like one of the layers was screwed up, like there'd be 20 exposures on the blue layer, then we'd have to throw that thing away, and we'd have to fix it, and we'd have to recomposite it again. And that'd take about a day, a day and a half to recomposite it. And then it comes off the recompositor, then you look at it, then you have to get all the dust marks off it, then you have to reproof it. <laughs> but the all 30, 30 colors. And then, so we do proofs wow. too, we do live proofs that were just these, not real prints, but we had these big, they were really expensive, like the proofs were like 500 dollars a sheet and there was four sheets in each one so we had to be careful we didn't wow. screw those up those, we, we proofed lots of stuff um, so uh, why they were doing most of this work because 
it had never been done before? Uh, people needed the work. Like, people needed maps. Encyclopedia uh, like Britannica needed it. The, the, coal, the, uh, the coal basins needed it. They printed these things and handed them out. We also did work for the, um, uh, what was it called? The... Um, uh, the DMA, the Defense Mapping Agency. I did. We did some stuff. We did hydrological maps of the Dutch coast. Uh, our specific thing was the Dutch coast, and it was probably for submarines, for U.S. submarines, the U.S. submarine fleet. Whoa. So, and it was it was classified. We could. We had to lock up the negatives at night, and we had to get security clearances. Huh. Um, and they would. And we we were redoing the hydrological charts for uh, the Dutch coast, which is you know. It's just sandbank, so it wasn't like it's not much there. It wasn't like anything that was. And dikes. Yeah, yeah, there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't much around it, but that was that was a big deal. There was some sunken ships that they had to, you had to be careful about, but that was just copying. That was just editing the existing ones. So that was that was pretty interesting. But it was always interesting. It was fun to work. There was a big group of us. There was like maybe thirty of these big light desks in one big room at the wow, university, overlooking Bascom Hill, in an old building on the fourth floor. It was beautiful. An old Victorian building that was it was really nice. It was a good job. Wow. Yeah. Damn. So, did you have any other like kind of practices like this that were, you know, quite blissful in the past that you have moved away from now? Um, I don't think so. I used to do Tai Chi when I was back in Boston. I like mm. to do that again. That was really good. I had a really good instructor. That, that was your your former youth instructor. Right, my Mark. karate teacher. Your karate teacher. Yeah, he was really good. Um, mm-hmm. I'd probably like to do that again. What was it about Tai Chi? Because I'm really interested in Tai Chi as well. I did it for a lot. For it took me about um, six or nine months, and my 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 uh, shoulders were really sore because you have to hold your hands up. Right. And Mark was always telling us, "Well, you have to hold them up in tension, but you have to relax." Hmm. And it took me literally almost nine months to figure that out, like how to hold your hands up without being tense. And I didn't, I didn't think it was possible to not be tense and do it. So it didn't even occur to me. And then, because my hands would always get really, really sore at the end, and then I figured out how to do it. And you just you would just hold them up, but you wouldn't tense yourself. Yeah, it's like the, the middle way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Huh. Um, and then you could do the, the motions. and the, um, We did, I, I think I did it for a couple of years. Um, it was good. And then he did a thing where he, um, he was, we did it for a while, and he would test us, and then we didn't realize this, but basically Tai Chi is is slow motion kung fu right and then so mark would eventually he'd, he'd come at us kind of like medium speed with like striking moves and then and then you would just you just naturally did the tai chi stuff and you would deflect the moves huh. uh, we were all stunned he did to a couple of us and we were like oh wow that's what that is uh, and you would like try to strike us and you kick you move your leg or do all these things where parting the lion's man was like how to get around the shot from the side and all that kind of stuff yeah it's very cool yeah it's very cool i really wanted to yeah. I really wanted to get into it while I was in Japan, but I didn't uh, find a teacher like in time. Um, but yeah, it's a, I, I have a book on Tai Chi, yeah. and it's like because it is like a it is a martial art in itself. Yeah, it is. But I think you need an instructor. Right, that's why I, I don't want to just learn it out of a book. I yeah, I think you can, but I think a part of, and everybody teaches it a little bit differently. Right, there's different styles, and there's no right way to do it. I don't think there's a lot of different ways. Yeah, people give it different names, and we did a taster course like a summer ago, and that was fun again. Um, yeah, when, when lockdown ends, you can get back into exactly. Yeah, that's let's go. So nice that um, I've always built stuff when I've been little. We always like tinker around. So my grandparents would always tinker around with stuff. My grandfathers mm. would always tinker around with. Bumpo was always fixing stuff up around the garage and putting a piece of concrete down and fixing the roof. And then my other grandfather was a famous mechanic, and he could literally mm. fix anything with like a 
like a screwdriver and a pencil. He would just he could tune up a car. Wait, who, like, who was that? Uh, um, Gramps, Grandpa, Grandpa Huns- Hunsaker. Oh, he was a, he, like a mechanical, um, like on cars. Yeah, yeah. So he was a car mechanic, he, or for tractors or anything like in, any internal combustion engine, or oh. any I think the transmission. He could just listen to it and figure it out pretty much, Whoa. and he could tear it up like on the spot. He did it to my parents' car all the time. He'd come over and he'd listen to it and go, hmm. Mm. And then you'd open up the hood and you'd fill yeah. around like two or three things and it was unbelievable. Wow, it's so useful. Because he could hear it. Yeah. He didn't have to look. He didn't... He could hear what was wrong with the car. He that's was so good really at cool. it. That's cool. Yeah. That's like quite a, a master level. Yeah, it was a master level. Yeah. And he, he liked it too. He was good. He was also good at untangling fishing lines when we were little because he'd go yeah. with all three of us, my two older brothers who were twins. And, and we'd go fishing, and of course we'd tangle the lines all the time. And he was extremely patient uh, about untangling the lines. Yeah, patience is certainly a... Uh, yeah, it's definitely a virtue, especially in regards to fishing lines. It can be so frustrating. Yeah. Damn. So, yeah. So that was good. Wow, cool. Um, well, I mean, I guess we might as well come to the where we are right now in, in, in your workshop, essentially. <laughs> Um, and you have like you have a prototype sitting next to me here. <laughs> Could you explain like what you're what you're doing in regards to this creative project? Yeah, so um, mostly all the stuff I do for backbones, which are these full size pop up baseball backstops, came out of a need when you guys were little at a, at a league you guys played in. Mm-hmm. And I slowly over the course of ten years tested these things for the league. And, um, Shout out to London Sports. London Sports, great. Yeah, very supportive of, of all my prototypes and and buying them, <laughs> buying them in place. Uh-huh. Um, they all worked pretty much. Uh, there was a couple ones that weren't. There's one, the thing with the like the the claw feet, like the lunar lander one. That was a little too complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for people who don't know what you're talking about, what how would you describe this uh, lunar lander or the yeah the basic concept of your... So the basic concept is. Uh, uh, when you guys were little, you were in a baseball league. We come to find out the largest little league in Europe, and it had no fields. We, we they were popping up, and we still do pop up twenty fields from two containers in about an hour, hour and a half, on a public park. Um, and you know we didn't think anything of it until we realized that it's really astonishing that you can build these fields and make them good. And when you guys were younger, they were just scaffolding poles that people throw nets over. And people would get stuck in them, and they weren't that good. So then we needed a couple really good ones for the older teams because they were starting to compete in the Little League Championships for Great Britain, and we just didn't have a good field. So I made some out of aluminum scaffolding poles. These things were like 20 feet tall, 60 feet, 20 feet on a side, so 60 feet long, mm-hmm. 20 feet tall, and, um, and they went into ground sockets in the ground. Um, and they worked. But those big ones weighed like 160 pounds, cost like over two almost three thousand pounds to build one wow and it took six people to put it up no eight people to put it up but it popped up really quick you could you could put the thing up probably in about 20 minutes Mm -hmm. it screwed together it had a little uh scaffolding fittings it was aluminum scaffolding pipe with scaffolding fittings right with some custom netting put 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 with it so those worked fine we had two of them and everybody was fighting to get on those fields so then, then at some point, I took over the management of the league, and then I had to schedule these teams. And everybody wanted we – had, we had five different age groups, boys and girls. We did softball as well. Mm-hmm. And then everybody wanted to be on these fields. Everybody had equal time in these fields, and it was literally a nightmare to schedule. 
it was, it, I got some software from the United States to schedule it and it, it didn't work, it blew up. And I asked the guy, I said, you know, it's not working. Um, I said, how many fields do you have? I said, we've got 18 fields. And he goes, what? And I was like, yeah, we have 18 fields. He goes, no, there's nobody in the United States that has 18 fields. You can't have 18 fields. My software can't handle that. <laughs> and that's when I realized how big of the operation was. Huh. That it was this huge operation that would pop up because most people would use two or four fields continuously all day long. But right. we wanted everybody there at the same time to get a big group of people together so everybody could see here there's 500 kids playing baseball here. Yeah, so for 18 fields, there were there were 500 players. 500 like, players. On the field. And they, and they came in in two shifts. We had a morning shift and an afternoon shift. Wow. So the younger kids were in the morning, older kids in the afternoon. Mm. Um, and that's what we had. There was a lot, you know, there was a, we had, and then we did a pop-up food court, then we did like a merchandise cart, um, and we had umpires. We had we were training up to 30, or 30 umpires a year. High school kids were getting paid, mm. um, and it was it was it was it was fun. Now the parents were having fun, and we, then we put fences up in the outfields. There was no fences, so we had to figure out how to make these cheap fences out of construction uh, fencing, that kind of thing. So, anyways, so we're sitting in front here is the um, a prototype. So I made these backstops. And there's like now four different sizes of them, mm. and now the big ones weigh about 70 pounds. Mm. And they cost about fifteen hundred dollars, and they're have a, they have a hood on the top. How many pounds do they cost? How many pounds? How many pounds do they cost instead of dollars? Oh, uh, they cost uh, fifteen hundred pounds. Okay. Uh, so the big ones, the small ones are about six hundred, mm. um, and they pop. And they're much more lightweight. They're made out of uh, composite material, mm. so a uh, uh, fiber composite. Um, and they're material. they're like incredibly over-engineered. Incredibly over-engineered. And they're not going to break. They're not going to break. Um, and they're lighter than the aluminum ones. I do have an aluminum version that splices in the middle um, so I can ship it. Otherwise, they're one piece is the thing. So they're hard to ship because yeah. I can't really if I splice them, they'll break. Uh, they really, that's, that's a, I, I can splice them, but that's, a, that's another hole. It'll add a lot to the expense and people don't want to pay that much probably. So anyway, so then it came to like what was the next thing and then um, kids don't practice enough baseball so it's batting cages. So I do a batting cage. So I based this batting cage off an agricultural uh, poly tent. So it's just hoops with net between them. And then now I'm trying to attach some stuff to it. So, so it's kind of like, you know, like you see like long greenhouse tunnels yeah, on like, the side of the highway. It's a greenhouse tunnel made yeah. out of nets. Yeah. yeah. And it's so uh, I, I, I have a, a people that make uh, fishing nets, make these things for me. Um, and uh, so this is a so it's it's hard and expensive to build a batting cage in an urban environment. It gets vandalized. Um, a lot of people don't need them up all the time. Uh, mine can probably be popped up in about ten minutes, and it's attached to ground sockets again. You put these screws in the ground, and you just clip it into them. You can leave those screws there. They screw in. So even in the bigger ones, we used to put these big big ground sockets in. They're, they're huge ground sockets, like two inch diameter, and go down three feet. And um, you had to get permission from the council to put those on parks, and we did. It was fine because rugby posts and soccer posts are in those as well. Then I found these things called earth screws, where you literally, these things are about three-quarters of a meter long, you literally screw them into the ground. And they're removable. They go into the ground in about five minutes, mm. maybe ten minutes in hard soil. And then you just pop the backstops into those, and you can remove them if you want to, and they don't damage the ground, no concreting. They have a cap that goes on them. So it's all the system's all... Yeah, yeah, because your systems are like a conglomeration of many different fields of yeah. engineering and innovation that are all going towards building effective, easy to put up yeah. uh, backstops. Like you have, like what? What are the other like systems? That so you there's 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 nautical stuff. It's the America's Cup. I used uh, 
So Daima rope, which is a rope that's like three times stronger than steel wow. for to hold it between the poles so it doesn't sag. There's um, the carbon, the, the, the glass-reinforced polyethylene is basically Formula One technology, <laughs> um, and they use a lot of it in set building. Um, the earth screws are used for foundations for, uh, fe- they use them for festivals as a festival application um, and for like circus tents, that kind of thing. Um, this thing, the lit- now I'm using some new, I got these, you know, those little slider clippy things. I'm always looking for new stuff. To what about the, the hoses? Isn't there like a hose um, thing for like... Oh yeah, so when I clamp them together, so there, I do have a, a splice version of the aluminum ones and I use agricultural um, irrigation hose pipe fittings to use them as a splice to clamp the cam locks. Huh. Cam lock fittings that you would snap on, like firemen use on the fireman hoses. Uh-huh. That's the kind of stuff I use. And those are made out of uh, nylon reinforced uh, fiberglass. Wow. Those are all, so it's all plasticky. It's not, they're, they're, the ones I have now are not, like the aluminum ones are stiff. And when they take a wind load, they transfer that load to the um, footing or the earth screw. And there's a lot of stress. And the ones that the scrubs after 10 years have cracked the bottom of those footings. Because there's so much stress on these things, so mine aren't quite as big as the original ones. They're only 16 feet tall, um, and the ones that are made out of glass-reinforced polyethylene bend with the wind a little bit. They'll bend a couple feet on the top, so they move with the environment. So they take that stress and they dump the wind rather than transfer it right to the footings. Mm-hmm. And they also have little ropes that go off to the sides now that hold them down. So there's an area off behind the batting cage where kids can sit on the bench and not get hit by foul balls. So they're actually slightly bigger, but I've used those as a secondary support to hold them up. Because the wind on these things can get pretty severe, um, yeah. as you know, when you were a smaller plane. Yeah, it's true. It's a pretty windy place. And, and there's a lot of load on a on a, like a four-meter piece of, four-meter tall piece of netting. Yeah. It's cool that you've integrated so many different fields into a design of something that, you know, would think... It just it's quite a simple thing. But. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of uh, there's there's shackles. There's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of other fittings like nautical fittings mostly. Mm. Stainless steel clamps, all that kind of stuff. So they're impervious to there. They won't. The idea is you don't you put them in when you need them and you take them out right away. So when you're done playing, you take them out, roll them up, put them. They all fit in a twenty foot container. So you're just done. And the good thing about that is they won't get vandalized. But also if you have signage for your team. Like it says, the London Mets or London Sports, or if you have a sponsor, then you don't have to every time you play put that sponsorship up. I just you can just get a mesh form of that and put it on these, and they just roll up and put away when you put away your backstops. Mm-hmm. So you take your backstops out, all your brandings up there for your league, plus any sponsors, and you can do it for social media. Take pictures of it, it looks great, and then people walking by can say, "Oh, oh, look at that place! Oh, I know the name of that team because I can see it up on their backstop." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of applications there for yeah, so just most schools and like pickup leagues. Pickup leagues, and now I'm trying to get them into the softball leagues in England in the English yeah, parts. Beer league softball. Well, because in the, in the United States you don't play a baseball or softball without a backstop in a park. It's too dangerous. So yeah, so I'm trying to get them into the Regents Park and that kind of stuff. The smaller ones, um, and you know the people would set them up in the morning, but then they could put the name of the beer league on it or the right. league or the, the the sponsoring governing body could be on it or. They can sell it to Cafe Nero or J.P. Morgan, and the parks can make money off that because they can't put ads in the park, but they can put it on temporary stuff. Oh, so interesting. The parks could sell ads. They could put banners on that, and people can't complain because it comes down at night. Oh. So they could they, it would give them it would give the royal parks and all the parks a way to sell sponsorship, without destroying the look of the park, 
when people aren't using it. Yeah, so. that's a good idea. Mm, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, what advice would you have for your younger self or, in, or any younger creatives in, in the creative process? Do you have any like mm. tips for, I don't know, um, yeah, creative work? I would just say uh, keep doing it, keep trying it. It's real easy now with, uh, uh, so there's quick ways of making stuff. You call it, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, just in time? No, not just in time. There's a, um, a quick, uh, quick prototyping. It's easy. You can get stuff made, 3D printing. If you have an idea of something, you can draw it down. Send it. There's a number of places that do it even in metal now in London. Whoa. You can get stuff printed up and they'll do it and they'll do prototypes for it. It's not that expensive. Um, there's a lot of money kicking around now for uh, startups and it's easy to put a website up and make something now it's not that expensive mm. there's never been a better time for it so I think it's easier now than ever to have like a side gig going on that you're doing mm. something selling candles or whatever you think there's there's lots of solutions lots of solutions haven't been <clears throat> ever put out there so um, there's things that people need because the old stuff doesn't work anymore mm. you know it's a different world like like for sports, it's all pop up sports now. So you need like you want to play sports in a park, you can pop it up, take it down at night. And then a park can be used. It's not just a football pitch. It's not just a baseball field. It's not. It can be all those things at different times during the day. Mm. So it's multi use. As more people live in denser populations, then you can use it for whatever you want to use it to at that time. Uh, so think about the, you know other potentialities like that are waiting inside of um unused spaces or things like that yeah yeah because space is at a premium uh, uh, and you can do anything like that and there's and not every, everybody needs a little bit of unique stuff for like cricket or whatever you know could use a little pop-up space for at least teaching children anyways so the reason i did it was to get kids to play baseball and softball um and my stuff was designed on a smaller scale and i've scaled it up for adult use mm-hmm. um but it's it's also it's also more it's also um you know long term some of the stuff that I do pop up is is less expensive like a full size baseball backstop in the UK would cost about between 9 and 12,000 pounds to build mm-hmm. um and that'll last about 20 years so what it's costing you 7 100 600 pounds a year to use it well one of my things would cost like 1200 pounds and you can use it for 10 years. So long-term, it's a lot cheaper, and it doesn't get beat up by the weather. Mm-hmm. And you can move it around. So once you put like a big thing up, like a fixed thing like for cricket, then you can't move it. You're stuck with that spot. Right. Um, yeah, like if, if, you're, if you're using, a, if home plate is always in the same spot, yeah. like, like we know at Finsbury Park, yeah. you know, it starts to go below the, the water level, <laughs> the water. and it's like constantly... Yeah you to bail it out like you can move yeah. your backstop you wouldn't have that problem yeah you can move it around um so yeah and it's it's so it's 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 um it's interesting when you think about it that everybody wants a really permanent thing and the, but then you know if you have like a so you're doing some like event like you want to have a bunch of teams over and then well your your big field takes up the whole space so you can't reconfigure it for two smaller fields mm. and you're kind of stuck and the kids can't have to wait to play till the adults are gone when you could put like two or three kids fields on the adult field um, so there's all these advantages you can use it for, um, um, and and they're kind of slick. They kind of look good. They're kind of that kind of high tech. Yeah, it's true. They definitely have a quite a uh, black and high tech uh, high tech look to them. Yeah, elegant, you could say. So I'm looking to make them out of if I could get the 
poles made out of uh, a natural epoxy with either linen or bamboo fibers. That would be Whoa. perfect. It would be an eco-friendly, they're working on eco-friendly composite materials. So if I could get an eco-friendly, it's not, at this point, it's, it's, it's fiberglass reinforced polyethylene, which is a standard thing they use um, in composite. But they're working on getting natural epoxies and natural fibers. So I don't that's five or ten years out. And then the whole oh, thing will cool. be carbon neutral. And the netting, not so much, but maybe I get netting made out of bamboo. I don't know. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, so I guess, uh, you know, my last question is, I, I you, you did kind of indicate uh, this before, but what... Um, what inspires you right now? Like what, yeah, what are you finding as your, uh, your drive to keep mm-hmm. making these things and keep coming up with these like very creative solutions to problems? Right now I still have it. Right now it's, it's selling them and pushing them out and getting people to buy them and getting people to use them on a bigger scale. Um, and then see what other people, see what they need, see what other things. Like I don't really know which one's going to be the most popular at this point. Is it going to be the small ones for softball? Is it going to be the big ones for adults? Is it going to be the batting cage? Is it going to be some sort of individual batting station that you do, like, you know, you sit in a little cube and warm up? Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to know. Um, I think it's could be some backyard stuff. could be smaller versions of them. Um, there is cricket adaptations for these things that you can open them up. And there is people that make really, really cheap versions of these batting tunnels, but they're horrible. Um, mine are really heavy-duty and double-reinforced, so they're not going to break. Um, so it's kind of the mystery of not really knowing what what's going to happen. Not really know what's going to happen. It's a developing sport in Europe, so it's good. Um, in the United States, there's this was wasn't developed in the United States because they didn't need them. There's lots of fields there, mm-hmm. um, but there probably is applications for them in parks in the U.S. Um, that's why it was developed, you know, by an American in Europe, <laughs> mm-hmm. because we, there's a there's a huge lack of good fields in the U.K. and the fields that are good, like the Finsbury Park one, is pretty beat up. You know, it needs it needs some help, um, and it's really expensive to do that. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a way to get more people to play. And you know, if they do put more, if the government puts more into infrastructure, you can do something like this, and you can pop up lots of fields pretty quick. Um, but you got also another application is they could, you know, these could go into containers, and Major League Baseball baseball could send these to areas of the world that are uh, uh, developing areas of the world, mm-hmm. like the Dominican Republic, and they could use these. Um, without having to build giant fields, mm. um, um, so they could send that around to you know Central America and the Caribbean basin, um, and it was a way to promote more kids playing baseball in those areas, or even in Japan and um, Korea, and some areas of China play. Yeah, that's great. So it's kind of like a uh, spreading the gospel of of baseball. Yeah, the wholesome message. <laughs> and the wholesome message of baseball, which is the uh, the sport where you learn defeat. Yeah. If you, if you can't handle defeat, you can't play baseball. That's true. It is a game of defeat. Yeah. So the, the best batter ever uh, struck out six out of ten times. Right. And he's a legend. And, you always, and you're always going to lose in baseball. You're never going to have a perfect season. So it is really about failure. It's about handling failure. Mm. It's one of the few sports that you do that in a lot. Um, yes, certainly talking about like, it. Like golf, um, mm. same thing. Right? And you have experiences with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... You know, on a personal note, I find your creative endeavors quite inspiring for my own. Good. E- even though I'm not, you know, going to be building my own backstops, <laughs> I do. Ju- I do just find it, uh, yeah, refreshing to kind of come back to the house like every weekend. It's just see like new prototypes up and like different branding things and the the endless trials of your like uh, like you've got an industrial sewing machine right next to me, so you're like you keep expanding into different areas, areas yeah. where you know you're. Tr- learning new skills and stuff and yeah. I, so I, th- I find that really uh, yeah. 
yeah, for my own creative process. Yeah. That's very inspiring. So thank okay. you. For I'm glad I'm glad I can inspire you. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for the uh, thanks for the time, Dad. Okay, no problem. Anytime. Yeah. Glad to speak. All right. Peace out. <laughs> thanks for listening. Remember Yellowstone.